All right. Revelation chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 1 through 12 tonight. 1 through 12 tonight. Uh, really kind of getting deep into the tribulation period. Uh, we're going to just look at the fifth trumpet. So the last time we met a couple weeks ago, we uh, unlocked those first four trumpet judgments. And again, everything that we've talked about, uh, it, it's going to get bad on the earth and everything we've, we've mentioned thus far. It's pretty serious, but again, nothing in comparison to what is about to take place in our series, in our study. Uh, where we left off a couple weeks ago, Revelation chapter 8, verse 13, it says, And I beheld John saying this, and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants or those that are dwelling on the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpets of the three angels, which are yet to sound. So he's warning those that are left on earth at this time that everything that's about to take place, you thought it was bad, you ain't seen nothing yet. Basically what, what is taking place here. And then as we get into chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, it's all about just the fifth trumpet. And this can be somewhat terrifying if you think about it, because um, what we're going to look at tonight is really uh, unlocking the abyss and, you know, demons coming up out of the abyss and, and some other crazy things are going to happen later chapters as well. Um, but it's still, it's very important to work, or very important to mention um, all of this stuff and understand, you know, what, what exactly this is talking about. But like everything else that we've talked about in this series, it's, it's very easy to get lost in the debate of what exactly did John mean? Now we have to understand that when John wrote this, again, he's using a lot of similes, you know, a lot of metaphorical writing, like and as. Uh, he's trying to describe something that in his mind he can't fully describe. And we've all been there. We've seen something, we witnessed something, and then you try to describe it to someone else and you're like, um, it's like, um, um, just, you're just trying to spit it out. You know, Nate does a good job. He's like, he's trying to describe his game and it's like, all right, just spit it out, Nate, spit it out. What are you trying to tell us? But he has a hard time because it's all, it's all right there and he wants everyone to know it, but it's, 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 it's difficult for him. So I think even John, it's difficult in his understanding, maybe a first century understanding to even describe some things that really are about to happen. Uh, but verse number one, it says, and the fifth angel sounded and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. Now, just a quick side reference story. Amanda, she said this morning uh, when she was going to clean, uh, she saw some deer in our yard, which has nothing to do with this, but um, it's kind of cool. And then I think she said she saw a fallen star. I was like, oh no, <laughs> it's not good. Thank you. I don't know what you're talking about. But uh, it was just funny. She had mentioned that to me this afternoon. And I was like, do you know what I'm studying? Like, I'm, I'm pre-trib. Like, I believe, like, pre-trib. But she's saying something that she's seen that is happening now. She's like, no, it didn't fall to the earth. It just, you know, fell and burned up in the atmosphere or whatever. Um, so anyway, it was just a side note. She's like, I saw a fallen star. I was like, I hope, I hope this fallen star didn't have a key to the abyss and is going to unlock things. But anyway. Um, let's just keep going. Uh, so he sees a fallen star fall from heaven to the earth, and him was given the key of the bottomless pit. I'm going to read these 12 verses, and then we're going to kind of jump into the lesson tonight. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit. And the smoke of the great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. I mean, just imagine everything coming up out of this that darkened the sun and the sky. And there came out of the smoke locust upon the earth. 
and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Now, I don't believe these are actual locusts, and I'll mention this in just a minute. And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men that have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months, and their torment was an as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. Anybody ever been stung by a scorpion? No? A couple? All right. Is it painful? I've never have. Very painful? Very painful. Okay. Maybe next week we'll bring a scorpion to illustrate on the worst kid in here. Kevin, okay, very good. All right, Kevin, thank you. Your dad volunteered you. Just so you understand what they're going to go through, okay? I'm just kidding. We're not going to do that. Um... Where was that? Where was that? I just lost my place. Uh, verse 6. And in those days shall men seek death. Now this is interesting. Shall seek death and shall not find it. And shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared into battle. And on their heads were as it were crowns like gold. And their faces were as the faces of men. And they had hair as the hair of women. And their teeth were as the teeth of lions. And they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running into battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and they were stings in their tails, and their power was to hurt men five months. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon. But in the Greek tongue hath the name Apollyon. One woe is past. And behold, there come two woes more hereafter. So again, all of this is just this first woe, which is the fifth trumpet judgment. And as the fifth trumpet judgment sounds, what we begin to see is demons torturing unbelievers in such a violent depiction of God's judgment. And really what, what is happening here is God is using evil to punish evil, to judge evil. And as we jump into the lesson tonight, the first thing we see, really the overview of this, this section is this. We see a spiritual warfare that is both real and intense. A spiritual warfare that is both real and intense. You know, it's easy to talk about things like demons and all of that stuff and not think they are real, but it's very real. And this battle that's going to happen is not only just real, but is also very intense. It's not something made up. And again, Revelation 9 can be scary. It can be downright scary. But we see our great God turning evil upon itself. In this chapter, war is addressed. And I'm talking about the war that is going to happen between both the physical world and the spiritual world. Up to this point, really, in, in history, the, the war between the physical and the spiritual has really kind of been kept at bay. But at this time, I mean, it's really going to come forth. And the imagery here is really terrifying because these demons that are unleashed are going to bring devastation, destruction, and death um, eventually to those that, that they are met with. In verses 1 through 6, here, but here's what we see. This is the very important thing about this. God is sovereign in what he allows. We've been talking about the sovereignty of God throughout this whole study. And, you know, I don't think I can ever fully address the sovereignty of God and Amanda and I were talking about the other day, I asked her a question, I'm not going to ask it tonight, but I asked her a question and she's like, my only answer is because God is sovereign. And it's something she's like, I, I don't fully understand it because there are things in our finite mind 
that we can't comprehend, right? But the thing is, God in his infinite wisdom understands it all. And no matter what we think or don't think, God is still sovereign, which means he is still in control. And this is the most important piece. I mean, again, it can be, it can be terrifying even for you know, kids as we read through this and, and study this. But we have to understand that God is in control. And the most important thing for us to stand, understand is that all of this takes place under the control of God. Martin Luther, the great uh, reformer, he once said, the devil is still God's devil. <laughs> His point is clear and powerful. And what we learn in verse number one is that Satan has as much authority as God gives him. Now, this principle is prominently displayed in Job chapter 1, uh, verse 12, and also in Job chapter 2, verse 6, where the story there, we're not going to read it for sake of time, but, you know, S Satan, Lucifer, he's, he's wandering around in heaven, and, and um, the story that he, he inflicted, you know, you know, torment and torture on Job. But every, everything that he inflicted upon Job, he had to ask permission first. He couldn't do anything apart from God allowing him to do what he was able to do. And really, this is so fundamental and foundational going forward. There is only one sovereign leader. There is only one that is truly in control. And I'm not talking about Emperor Palpatine or Darth Sidious for Mike. That's not who I'm talking about, okay? Yeah, exactly. That was a Star Wars reference just for him and for some other people as well. But the only one that is truly sovereign is God himself. You know, God is not the author of evil, but he will use evil against itself. And here's the important truth to understand. Nothing happens apart from the sovereign determination of God. Nothing. <laughs> it's just funny. <laughs> back and forth, back and forth. It's, it's fine. It's just, I got my own kid, like, mimicking me, like, half the time, so... <laughs> Oh, okay, okay, okay. Gotcha. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. Um, but understand, nothing happens apart from the sovereign determination of God, meaning that everything that is happening now on this earth, God knows. He's in control. Everything that will happen, even during the tribulation time, God knows and is in control of. Look, look what it says. As that, that star fell from heaven, and we believe that to be uh, Satan or Lucifer, because you can reference that to Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12, where it says, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are you cut down to the ground, you had, who had weakened the nations? You know, this star is not just an inanimate object. It has personal identity, because it says at, uh, at the end of verse number one, it says, To him, this star... Is, is personal. To him was, what's that word? Next word. To him was given. You know, we've already kind of walked through these things already, but again, when the seal judgments went forth and when the trumpet judgments have gone forward, everything that the angels did as messengers of God was given to them by God. They couldn't do anything apart from him giving it. So that phrase is very important. It's very uh, key. And throughout the book of Revelation, God is the only one who grants the authority to anyone. And what it says next, to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Now, in my wild imagination, you know, I can just imagine. I don't think this is what happened, but I can just imagine. You know, like, you know, they have those like um, those things, you know, where like the, the mayor comes out and gives someone like the giant key to the city. Like that, I, I'm pretty sure that's, that's what's going to happen. Like God is like, here's the giant key to the abyss. 
and the angel is flying down. Is that what you see, Mike? I mean, yeah, it's exactly how you see it. He's flying down with this giant. Again, it's, it's just my imagination. I don't think that's going to happen. It's not in the Bible. Um, but I can just imagine, you know, this giant key is trying to hold it and you know, fly and everything like that. But anyway, um, just, just for the sake of fun. So the key was given to this bottomless pit. And what we need to understand is that there is an abyss. There is a bottomless pit that will be opened by this fallen star. And this is the place where evil spirits and demons are kept until the end of the world. Verse number two, we see that once he takes this key to the pit, he opens it and what arises is a smoke. I mean, smoke that we have never seen before. You know, sometimes, you know, you're, you're lighting something on fire and the smoke just comes up in your face. Uh, this is going to come up in the whole world's face. This smoke arises as a great furnace and the sun and the air were darkened. I mean, you know, there, there's been times, you know, a forest fire in, in, a, in a centralized location where everyone, you know, kind of under smoke, you know, warnings and stuff like that. But imagine the whole earth, the whole earth. I mean, I, I can't even imagine, you know, this. And the sun being dark in the air by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locust upon the earth. And unto them, again, here's that word, was given given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it's worth noting in this chapter that there are more occurrences of the words as and like than there are in any other chapter in the Bible. Because it shows how difficult it was for John to describe a lot of these things. Now, quick side note. The devil won't always have authority over this. Over this bottomless pit. Because... He's going to be imprisoned here for a thousand years following the second coming of Christ. But when this shaft is open, demons in the form of locusts are given power and authority. And really, this is reminiscent of the eighth plague of Egypt and the locust vision of Joel. And these are demons that are released to torment mankind spiritually, physically, and in every other way possible. But again, remember that they can only do what God allows them to do. Just like Satan could only do to Job what God allowed him to do. We continue on, verse number four. And it was commanded them, this is very important to note, that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not or don't have the seal of God in their foreheads. Kind of referencing, you know, at least those 144,000 that were sealed and maybe even others. And really, that's a sign of God's protection and also possession that, hey, these are mine you can't touch him, but you can touch everyone else, and you can do harm to everyone else. Verse number five, and to them it was given that they should not kill them. So again, they can torture, they can harm, but they cannot kill anyone, but that they should be tormented. Five months, so it's a specific period of time. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. You know, the normal lifespan of a typical locust is about five months from May to September. And this is the length of this judgment. Again, just try to imagine in your mind, you know, mankind being judged and no escape. No escape whatsoever for five months. You know, you think about the last five months, the last nine months, it's been crazy. It's nothing compared to what is actually going to happen. You know, these demons, in a sense, are going to sting people and create such pain that their victims actually want to die, but they can't. 
And you think about it, for thousands of years, mankind has tried to escape the icy hands of death, but it's unavoidable. Now, mankind is going to try to die, but they can't. I mean, just imagine someone trying to to blow themselves up, but they can't. (laughs) Try to poison themselves. They can't, because this is God's judgment upon them. I want to read um, quickly uh, John MacArthur's take upon this. He says, it's so intense the, the torment inflicted on, on unbelievers in those days, the five months in verse five, that men will seek death, will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. All hope is gone. There will be no tomorrow. The earth people have loved and worshiped will have been utterly devastated and with the land ravaged by earthquakes and fires and volcanoes, as we've already kind of mentioned. The sea is going to be filled with the putrefying bodies of billions of dead creatures Much of the fresh water supply turned into bitter poison. The atmosphere polluted with gases and showers of heavenly debris. Then worst of all, with this will come this foul smoke from the pit of hell as the demons are released to spiritually and physically torment wicked people. The dream of a worldwide utopia under the leadership of Antichrist will have died. Driven mad by the filth and vileness of this demon infestation, people will seek relief in death, only to find that death had taken a holiday. There will be no escape from the agony inflicted by these demons. No escape from divine judgment. All attempts at suicide will fall in vain. And it, it just gives us a picture of what's going to happen. But again, I reference and I help us understand that if you're saved, if you're a Christian... You don't have to endure that. And first and foremost, you should take you know, great heart and hope that, that God isn't going to allow you to endure that. But at the same time, this judgment is just going to intensify. And that's why it is very important for us to be so busy about the gospel. Because really, even your worst enemy, what we're looking at tonight, who would want anyone to go through that? In your right mind. No one. And that's why we have to do a better job of sharing Jesus Christ and the gospel with the world that, that is lost and dying. And that's why we're, we're taking these, this time on Wednesday night specifically to, to pray for people that need to be saved. You know, Amanda's reading a book right now, and you know, in the story, this, this, this lady got saved, and, and she had referenced the fact that this other person had prayed diligently, what, months and months, right, for her. You know, prayer does work. But we have to be about it. We have to be so diligent about praying to God and asking Him for opportunities to, to give us opportunities to, to reach down and, and help people, help those that are afflicted. So what we see in verses 1 through 6 is that, you know, yes, again, it's going to be bad, but God is still sovereign. He is still sovereign in what He allows. But then verse 7 through 12, what we see are the attributes of these demons, the attributes of these demons. So we are given comparison of what they are going to look like. And again, John is using a lot of metaphorical type language. Warren Wearsby wrote, he said, reading the detailed description of these creatures, we realize that John is not writing about ordinary locusts. Yet despite its obvious symbolism, it aptly portrays a powerful enemy armed with battle or armed for battle. With bodies like horses, but faces like men, the demons' heads are crowned and covered with long hair. He said, it's unnecessary to try to spiritualize these symbols or to interpret them in light of modern means of warfare. 
John is heaping imagery upon imagery to force us to feel the horror of this judgment. And what we see is these descriptions. The first thing in verse number 7, horses, in a sense, equipped for battle. They are like horses equipped for battle. And the shape of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle. You know, they're an army prepared to wage war. These creatures are going to have mobility. He continues on. And on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold. So gold crowns were on their heads. This points to the authority that they have and the, the power that they have. They symbolize the victory they will have over the objects of their possession. It continues on, verse number 7, talks about them having faces like men's faces. This speaks of their intelligence. They are cunning and cruel and wise and wicked. Verse number 8 tells us that they had hair like women. You know, there are a couple thoughts concerning this verse. First, it may infer long, loose hair, giving the impression of a ferocious being. But the second thought is that they are of such striking beauty and charisma that few can reject what they present. But I think the idea here is that they are seductive in their strategies. They are alluring and enticing. Verse number 8 continues, they had teeth like lions. Again, just the, the, the imagery here. I mean, just imagine this creature. I think this denotes the fierceness, the ferociousness, the lethal power in their attack. No one wants to come face to face with the mouth of a ferocious lion. Anybody? I don't think so. And once you're in the jaws of a lion, it's nearly impossible to escape without any harm. Verse 9, they had chests like iron breastplates. So what this is telling us is they are virtually invulnerable. They are strong and well protected. Verse 9 continues, their wings are like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. If any have been around a large group of horses, you understand the imagery here. You have a large group of horses just running together and the, and the sound that that portrays. The sound of their attack and approach would strike fear in the hearts of the opponent. I mean, imagine if all of a sudden you heard a stampede of horses like right outside your house. <laughs> Anybody like that? Like you'd probably be trying to hide or figure out what's going on. Verse 10, they had tails like scorpions. What this is telling us is that they possess a sting that produces great pain and agony. These demons can wreak havoc for five months, as it says in verse 10. They can only harm for five months. Now, most people don't like torture, but imagine a torture that lasts for five months that you cannot escape. And again, what we've endured this year has not been torture because there has been escape. You can escape out of quarantine or whatever it is that we've gone through. But there is no escaping those that don't have the seal of God. There's no escaping at all. But what we learn is that there is a limit, but still adds to the intensity of their mission of misery. Verse 11, we learn that they have a king to rule over them. All of this takes place ultimately under God's authority. But directly and immediately it takes place under the direction of their king. You know, real locusts, the Bible tells us in Proverbs 30, verse 27, have a king. But this army follows the rule of Satan, the angel of the bottomless pit. And really, 
what we understand about this king in verse number 11 is that this king has a name. And I'll explain both of these names in a minute, but if you want to put them both together, the king's name means this, destroyer. The king's name means destroyer. John uses the Hebrew and the Greek word here. In the Hebrew, his name is Abaddon. In the Greek, it is Apollyon. You know, many believe these are direct references to Satan. The Hebrew word Abaddon appears six times in the Old Testament, and it comes from a verb that means to destroy, to kill, to perish, to become lost. Abaddon would have conjured images of doom and despair for John's readers because John's readers, a lot of those were Jewish readers. So they would understand the imagery going back to the Old Testament. And they would understand and be even more fearful of the torture that was coming for those that didn't know Jesus as their Savior upon this angel. But then not only does does, uh, John reference the the Hebrew tongue for the word destroyer or baden, but he also goes in the Greek tongue, which was also spoken in that day. And he said, his name hath the name Apollyon. Now, does this name sound similar to anything? Apollo. Anybody know who Apollo was or Apollo is? Apollo, no, it's not Apollo Creed. <laughs> Wrong one. <laughs> who is Apollo? He's a Greek god. What? Yeah, he's a Greek god of war. You know, a lot of times the Greek had different gods. Now, it's very interesting why John would use this imagery here. You know, Polyon, the Greek counterpart to destroyer, Abaddon, is used as a proper name only here in the Bible. And the meaning is one who destroys. John is probably using the Greek word as an indirect attack on the Greek and Roman god Apollo. And one of the symbols for Apollo that has been used in history is that of a locust. The Greek reader could not have missed the subtle emphasis on this destroyer. Verse number 12, one woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. Now let's just stop right there. That's pretty bad, isn't it? That's pretty intense. And again, we're not even probably halfway through everything in the tribulation, this this time that's going to last, excuse me, for seven years. And that is why, before I finish this off, That is why it is so vitally important that one, we know for sure where we're going. That you know for sure that heaven is your home. That Jesus is your Savior. Just coming to church doesn't grant you access into heaven. You know where I have a baptism on Sunday. Being baptized does not grant you access into heaven. Trusting Jesus as your Savior is what grants you access into heaven. Realizing that He died for you on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again, and giving your life and understanding that he is the redeemer of mankind. You know, there's a lot of people that have a false identity. They have a misguided approach to Christianity. Well, I've been in church for 45 years. I don't know how many people I've talked to growing up and, and, you know, through my, my time in church. And as a Christian, I've talked to other people that, you know, just asking about their salvation or their, 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 their past and, and they're trying to explain salvation. Well, I've been in church for a long time. I'm sure Brother Mike's heard a lot of people like that too. And I can easily assess that there's a good chance they're probably not saved. Now, some will spat off different things here and there. But again, it's not just doing good things. It's not just checking off the list. It's not just sitting in a pew, sitting in a chair. That doesn't grant you access in heaven. But, but I know all 66 books of the Bible. I know where they're at. Good for you. 
There's more to that. That's why, that's why I preach so passionately about the gospel and helping us understand, because I know that there are more than likely people in our church that are not saved. More than likely, there are people that come, even on a consistent basis, that have never trusted Jesus as their Savior, that have misguided their identity, thinking that I'm saved, when in reality, they've never asked Jesus to save them. And it's something that some people will, some, honestly, some people will never do because they're afraid of what people might think. And, I, and I've met people like that. Like, I mean, they're 50, 60, 70 years old. They've, they've lived a long life and they know they're not saved. Brother Hallen, he's shaking his head back there. He's met people like that, but they're too stubborn. <laughs> they're too prideful to say, you know what? I'm not saved because what are people going to think of me? You know, the reality is most people are going to rejoice with you, especially if they're in church with you and you're, they're in your community. They're not going to be like, oh, man, I thought that guy was saved. I thought that woman was saved. What's their problem? No. Thank God that you got it settled. That's the most important thing. And again, that's, that's what I want us to take from Revelation, from Acts, from other series, knowing for sure that we are saved, that we are on our way to heaven. But despite this horror of this fifth trumpet, there are greater horrors to come. But the reminder that I want us to take is not so much about these locusts and the demons and even, you know, greater terrors are coming that we'll, we'll dive into. And even, even when we get to the bold judgments, I think, in, I think it's chapter 16. I might be a little bit um, off on that, on that. But when we get to the bold judgments, or the, um, you know, it, it's, it's going to get more intense. But everything that we need to understand is that everything that's going to happen is still under the authority of God. You know, I think sometimes... And I've been guilty of this too. We give Satan too much credit, right? We give him too much power. Now, he is a powerful individual. He's a powerful created being. But he is created, just like you, just like me. And again, I've been guilty of this. We say things like, well, and the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. <laughs> now, there are forces at work against us, but... We give him a limitless power. But is his power limitless? No. It's limited. Even when you study the book of Job, Satan himself, he cannot be in every place at one time like God can. He is confound to time, or he was bound to time and space. He can only be in one space at a time. Maybe he can get there faster than, than others, but he is not all-powerful. You know, some of the attributes of God is that he is omniscient, which means he knows everything. Satan doesn't. An attribute of God is that he is omnipotent, which means he is all-powerful. Satan is not because the power he has has been given to him by someone greater. He is omnipresent, which means God is everywhere at once. Satan is not. So again, understand that, yes, he is a powerful individual, a powerful being, but his power has been given to him. And everything that's going to happen is still under the almighty hand of God. Going back to what Martin Luther said, even the devil is God's devil. And the thing is, people put too much fear into him. You're saying we shouldn't fear? Well, I understand that there's a, there's a healthy fear. But again, I think of what 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If you're a Christian, what you have inside of you is greater 
than the devil and all of his forces. Far greater. And yet as Christians, we're so afraid of what the devil's going to do to us. If you're saved, if you're a child of God, you're protected. He can't touch you. I mean, really, you can kind of reference this. If you're saved, if you're a child of God, you are sealed, right? You are sealed with the holy seal. Well, I'm afraid he's going to really you know, get a hold of me. I'm not going to go on demonic oppression and possession and this and that. But there's a difference between those two. And again, we, we give him much more credit, much more power than he has. And what we're learning from John's writing is that the power he has is still limited. But God's power is limitless. There's only one sovereign ruler, and it's not the devil. It's God. And what we learn here is that God, not the author of evil, but uses evil against evil. <laughs> and that's, honestly, it, it's, when you think about it in some ways, it's kind of, kind of cool because all of those that have rejected God, they've had ample opportunities to trust him. All of those that have been blatantly rebellious towards the almighty king are going to get their, what they deserve. And this evil is not attacking Christians, is it? It's attacking other evil. It's attacking others that have martyred and killed other innocent individuals. God is going to take care of these people. Understand that. And what we close with this main idea, this key truth is this. Judgment is coming. It's coming to an unrepentant humanity. But even though our Lord uses Satan and his forces to bring about judgment, nothing happens apart from his so the sovereign determination of God. Nothing happens apart from the sovereign determination of God, meaning nothing happens that God doesn't know or that God doesn't allow. And you think about it, and it's, it's astounding. Even during this time, people will still refuse to repent, even after seeing the judgment of God. So let me, let me close with a question. I know it's kind of a well-rounded question. And there's not necessarily one specific right answer. But why do you think people are still going to refuse to repent even after seeing God's judgment? Anybody have an idea? Pride? I think so. I don't think it's a sin to them. Anybody else? I mean, it, it, it blows my mind. Yeah. Yeah, they will be deceived <coughs> by the Antichrist and others. Why else? What, what, what are some other thoughts? Again, not necessarily a right or wrong answer. It's just, it's a tough question. Marcus, you're just rubbing your head? Okay. He was, he was thinking deep about it. Venetia? I know. But it's still, as a Christian, doesn't it blow your mind? Like, there is someone greater than this, and these individuals are harming you. Why not turn to someone that can help you? And I'm sure they're going to be able to see that there are people that aren't touched by this, but yet still in their pride and stubbornness and everything else. Like, again, it, it, it's hard for me to even comprehend. Why would people do that? But we've seen that in every generation, haven't we? People that have had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent of their sins, to turn from God, or turn from their rebellion, turn from their wickedness, turn from their sin, and turn to God, and yet they choose to refuse. It, honestly, it doesn't make sense to me. 
But again, as we close, one woe is past, and behold, there come two more woes hereafter. So in a couple of weeks, we're going to finish chapter 9. We finish the, the sixth trumpet, which is the second woe. And again, it just continues on. So hang on tight. We're trying to get through as much as we can. Try not to just go too deep into it. Again, give us a broad understanding of what this book is about. But at the same time, take hope. Take hope that God is sovereign, that he's in charge, he's in control. That We're not going to be here, but again, we have a gospel duty. We have a job to do to share the gospel with the lost and dying world. Let's go ahead and pray.